Now it's my special pleasure to give the floor to Mrs. Samantha Cristoforetti, an astronaut from the Space Agency. Um, and she will, of course, talk about her stay in the International Space Station uh, recently. So, thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, let's see. I, um, I've been thinking how to be um, useful here uh, for the work you have ahead of you. Uh, I've been given about half an hour, so I'm going to put my watch on the table. Um, and I'm going to do a little bit of a mutiny here because I was told to actually speak for half an hour, but I want to do that. And the reason I want to do that is because I'm actually going to leave, unfortunately, after my talk. So I want to be available for any follow-up questions during the coffee break or, you know, during the upcoming discussions. So I do want to leave you plenty of time to ask any questions that come to mind. Now, you didn't come up with a lot of questions in the previous talks. <laughs> Hopefully, the, the time will actually be useful. But yes, please do um, ask me anything you might be curious about uh, in terms of what an astronaut might experience in a closed habitat that already exists, which is the space station. I will just go uh, try and go quickly, maybe 15, 20 minutes through a few slides just to give you and ideas, these are things that I thought might be interesting for you, but really I have no idea what really you're curious about. So um, that's why I'm trying to give you uh, plenty of time for questions. Does that sound good? Yeah, all right. Uh, so I was uh, on ISS with the mission Futura. Uh, it was about 200 days, uh, a fairly typical mission. Uh, they're typically um, five and a half months. We got extended by one month, so it was slightly longer than, than most missions, but you know, a, a, fairly, um, a fairly typical duration. Um, we don't see a whole lot. Well, it's okay. Um, you probably have seen a rocket before, so we, we launched from, uh, from Kazakhstan on a Soyuz rocket to get to the space station. Uh, it was the three of us. Um, of course, as you know, we're international crews, so I had uh, two crewmates, uh, one from Russia and one from uh, uh, the United States, uh, Terry and uh, Anton. And uh, we didn't quite get to the spaceship that I dreamed about when I was a child. Uh, Definitely a more cramped, uh, uh, closed habitat uh, on our way to ISS. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Soyuz, but it's basically seven meters from front to aft. So um, a very small, uh, small spaceship. And in reality, on the way to space station, we're really only basically sitting that way. Uh, in, in what we call the descent module, which is the central part of the Soyuz. Uh, it's kind of hard to see, but it's really divided in three parts, and it's only the central bell-shaped component that in the end is going to bring you back to Earth. And during the entire ascent space, you're basically strapped in. Um, I was, at least. My, my body's got a, a little bit of a pee break in between, but I didn't. Um, not, not because I'm a girl, just because of the position I was sitting in. Um, and then imagine that, of course, you're wearing a spacesuit. So it's, a, it's definitely a very cramped little spaceship. We love it. It's very reliable. brings you safely to space, brings you safely back to Earth, and that's number one for any astronaut, safety. Uh, we want to get the mission done and we want to get back safely as possibly. Um, but of course there's a lot of room uh, for improvement in terms of ergonomics and, and having a little bit more um, uh, space. And, and I'm a small person, I'm a meter 65 um, and it still wasn't comfortable. Some of my colleagues are obviously a lot taller and bigger and, and for them it's, uh, it's really not a comfortable ride. The good news is that it's short. Uh, nowadays it takes six hours to get to station uh, so you can 
suffer through six hours, a little bit longer. I mean, you, you know, you, you sit in the soils about two and a half hours before launch, and then there's a little bit of time after uh, after docking, but it's 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 a time frame that you can suffer through. It's not it's not a big deal. And then of course you get to station, and station is a gigantic place. I mean, I get this question all the time: How did you survive 200 days in this cramped environment with uh, five other people? I mean, station is huge. I mean, it's gigantic. I mean, for five people, you really never have the impression that you're uh, getting in each other's way. Yes, maybe there are some areas of station that can get crowded occasionally, but it's really only at certain times of the day, and it just happens maybe for a couple of hours that everybody happens to be working and working out and going to the toilet in the same place. But really, station as a whole is, is really gigantic. And, uh, there's a little bit of difference in terms of uh, comfort and space, definitely between the uh, Russian part of the space station and the uh, non-Russian part of the space station. So what's non-Russia, we call uh, USOS, United States Orbital Segment, but it really also includes the, the Japanese and the, and the European modules. And you'll see in the pictures, uh, you know, our side is definitely a little bit more comfortable. The, the Russian part is more a little bit uh, mere heritage and, uh, and a little bit more cramped. Um, so probably for our standards, the Russians uh, do have a little bit of a lower quality of life in terms of personal space. Um, on the other hand, they also belong to a culture where, you know, also on the ground, I mean, you know, in their homes and in their apartments and stuff like that, they're used to, to, to living in more cramped space. So I guess they have an easier time to, to adapt to that. Uh, I mean, culture does play, play a role in what you're used to from home. Obviously, you take along when you, when you go to space. Anyway, long story, and, and just, I mean, I'm sure you, you know that, but you know, we're talking about a structure that is, is you, you cannot fit it in a, in a, in a soccer field. So it, it's really, really big. And it's basically across, you know, here you have the, the what we call the stack. So it's basically a sequence of pressurized cylinders attached to each other, were all launched individually and then assembled in space. Miraculously, they all fit together. It's pretty cool. Um, and then you have the, the truss, which is unpressurized. Uh, there are some external components out there, pumps to circulate the, the cooling ammonia and stuff like that. And then, of course, they, they, they allow the, the solar panels to be installed sort of out of the way of, uh, of the stack and, and the radiators. And th this is obviously a somewhat older picture, but uh, it's actually the, the one cool picture that we have of station at assembly complete. And uh, back then, of course, there was a shuttle docked, but we haven't seen one of those for a while. They haven't been spotted for the last five years. Uh, so as I mentioned, six people on board, an international crew. Uh, three of them are always Russians, and then uh, three are non-Russians, typically two Americans, and then the third one can be a European or a Japanese or a Canadian or occasionally could be another American. <clears throat> uh, as I said, we are totally green. We function purely on, 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 uh, on solar power. Uh, and of course, there's, there's a bunch of batteries out there that get recharged during insulation and then during eclipse, you actually uh, are able to power station from the batteries. Uh, batteries are going to be upgraded before the end of this decade. All of the batteries are going to be um, upgraded. This is the view from the window, not bad. And, uh, and these, are, these are some of these uh, pressurized cylinders that I'm sure you, um, you, are, uh, you are familiar with. Um, this is our uh, beloved uh, Columbus, so our piece of uh, Europe and the International Space Station, so the, the one module that uh, the European Space Agency, so we, uh, provided, and it's a laboratory module. So it's, it's full of basically uh, both European and American uh, science equipment to do research and some storage as well. 
Um, so as I, as I mentioned, I mean, you know, the, 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 it, it's very roomy up there and one of the reasons, of course, that it feels very roomy is that, you know, when you're in space, it's not about uh, square feet or square meters, it's about cubic meters. I mean, you're floating, so you're really inhabiting the environment in the three dimensions. It's like if we were in this room, we weren't all crowded next to each other on the table, but we could all float around the room, so it makes it a lot roomier and bigger. So one needs to think about that as well when you're wondering whether a space is cramped or not cramped. <clears throat> um, and I, I just put a few pictures just to give you an idea of actually how big it is. I mean, I don't know if I can convey that, but it doesn't, I mean, it never gave me at least the feeling that it was cramped, or rather that I was in a confined space. Now, what's a little bit annoying, I mean, not annoying, but not great, is that it's very um, cluttered. Um, there's a lot of cables around, and uh, yeah, sometimes it gives you that, that feeling of being a little bit chaotic, especially when you're new to station. Um, and you do... Uh, waste a little bit of time when you're working and trying to reroute cables and uh, moving equipment around and detaching computers and, and finding a way to route them uh, out of the way. So that, that's probably the one thing that's n one of the things that's not ideal in the, in the environment we have up there. Uh, it's not also clean and nice as it is, for example, here in the US lab. Uh, Columbus is notorious for having some storage issues. So uh, a lot of times you're actually doing your experiments while climbing on, on, on bags that actually need to be stowed in the open cabin. Also not ideal, but uh, you can live with it. You can live with it, it's not a problem, but of course it, it impacts a little bit the work because you know you see those bags that I'm sort of sitting on, well there is a storage rack beneath those. So if you actually have to access the storage rack beneath it, then you have to remove the bags that are on top. And they, you cannot just do like that, like you would on the ground because they would float away, so you have to secure them. So it's, it's a little bit of... Um, yeah, an ideal storage situation that, that makes uh, the work a little bit less efficient. Um, and this is, for example, our storage module. That's the um, PMM or Leonardo. And it's sort of kind of the same thing. I mean, it's a blessing to have it because it's a huge module dedicated only to storage. There's a lot of things going on on station in terms of uh, science and, of course, six people living on board. So we have to store a lot of things. So it's a blessing to have it, but you know, if, if, you, if you're looking for something beneath a rack and there's like big bags stored in front of it, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of a time hit. So in that sense, not ideal. Um, some things you can't help. Uh, some of the feedback we have been given, giving over the years as, as crew members is that you, know, you, you have to keep in mind that it's a big deal. It really is a big deal for people living on board. And so you, you need, to, for example, to, to cut down on packaging and cut down on foam. Um, things usually come up with uh, huge packages just because you, know, you want them to survive launch. But sometimes we wonder whether you know, it, it's a little bit of an overkill and then we have to deal with those huge packages on, on, on board or those huge boxes or those huge foam cushions. Um, you make use of all the space up there, so basically anything can really turn into a workspace. So you know, this is the, the US lab and this is obviously not meant as a permanent work location, but if you have to set up something mobile and, and not permanent like that, which is a portable, portable glove box, you can basically set it up any, everywhere and you can turn anything pretty easily in a decent workspace. And the way we do it is that we have handrails that we can detach and reattach everywhere and we have foot restraints and of course we have three dimensions that we can make use of and people can just float past you. So um, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to say is that in, 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 in zero gravity and with a smart way of, 
of making the environment flexible. You can do a lot with, 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 a, small, um, with a small work volume. Um, and, and again, on station we have the luxury of having a lot of space, but if I'm thinking on future habitats, this is going to have to be the case even more, that you know, things have to be modular and easily reconfigurable, but always keeping in mind that you know, if we're in zero-G, then people need to be able to secure themselves. So uh, there's a few negative examples of, of, of areas on station where it's really difficult to secure yourself, and then you're, you know, you're, you're trying to get some work done, but you're floating around all the time, and that's not, not ideal. Um, and then some areas are really set up kind of like on the ground, like, you know, these are maintenance workbenches and they're basically set up like you would, you know, set up something like that in your garage. So, you know, it, it turns the space station into a very uh, familiar environment in, in that sense. Now, these were all pictures from the US-West segment that I told you, you know, it's very roomy and, and, and spacious and I'm just going to show you a couple of pictures from the Russian segment. It's a little bit different. Uh, as I said, a little bit more cramped uh, space. Also, one of the big, this is the service module, which is their, their central core module and, and bigger module. Um, this is one of their uh, side modules. And as you can see, they have, a, which is something that we, 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 we don't have on the US-US segment and probably we wouldn't want to have in, in future habitats, is, is all those uh, ventilation lines that actually cut across the hatches. So they're quick disconnects, so if in an emergency you have to close a hatch, they should come apart pretty quickly. But it's even better if they were not there at all, like it's on the other side where they're actually behind the walls and then you can, you know, the, the pathway of a hatch is always free and you can always close a hatch really, really quickly in an emergency if you have to, you know, get on the other side of a fire or on the other side of a leak then you can do it pretty quickly, while here you actually have to take care of the disconnects. <clears throat> uh, so I'm, I'm back where we were, this is note two, and uh, the reason I'm showing it to you again is that we don't really have like dedicated modules on space station in terms of habitation for, for the crew. So we, we have, uh, I'm going to show you, we have uh, uh, elements of habitation a little bit uh, scattered everywhere. I think there used to be a HAP module foreseen right, a long time ago, but uh, eventually it was cut for budget reasons. And so everything that concerns habitation, so you know, your existence up there as a human being is a little bit spread out throughout station. So here in note two, you know, we have the maintenance workbenches and all the camera equipment, and uh, this is also where some of our cargo vehicles dock, so you would have a lot of cargo ops going on if something docked. Um, but you also have, on that bay back there, on the four sides, you have four crew quarters, which is where <coughs> four of us live, and then two are down in the, in the Russian segment. And crew quarters, um, they're kind of like phone booths like that, or, you know, this is a fisheye distorted picture, but just to give you an idea of what you would typically keep in there, like your, you know, personal laptops and a few personal items, and your sleeping bag, that's how you sleep. <coughs> Um, and then they're a little marvel in themselves, so this is the, the, the sleeping quarter when I took it apart before leaving because I had to clean it. After 200 days I probably had to clean it a little bit before leaving it, turn it over to the next person. Um, <clears throat> and of course all in there it's all ventilation ducts and, and there's a big fan and um, so I guess not a big fan but definitely a fan because as you know, you know, in, air needs to be circulated all the time on station otherwise you might end up having like a CO2 bubble in front of your mouth while you're sleeping and if you don't wake up potentially you could suffocate. <clears throat> um, 
so this is, uh, you know, in, in, in it's it's fairly straightforward to keep the place clean. Let's say, uh, of course, dust and stuff like that doesn't settle on on space stations. So what it typically does, it it color all con you know all floats towards the the filters. And so what we do is like on on the weekend we do some vacuum cleaning of all the grids, the return filter grids. Um, and this is the, the one big thing that we do to, to try and keep the place clean. And the other thing is uh, try and use disinfectant wipes, especially on handrails and handheld microphones and stuff like that, just to keep the uh, microbiological charge uh, low, which is, of course, monitored. Um, and typically, it's higher than the ground likes it. But we try to do our best to disinfect as much as we can. Um, this is, this is uh, so this big box here. This was my clothes supply, or clothes and personal item supply for uh, for the 200 days. So it's it's not a lot, but it's also not little. Uh, this is what we call one brick, and this lasts for two weeks, and it contains your t-shirts for two weeks, your underwear, uh, your socks, um, not your pants. Your pants you only get one per month, something like that. Yeah, but um, I, I mean it. And then you throw them away. We have no way right now to actually wash clothes, which would be something nice to have, of course, for future habitats, because right now we're generating a lot of upload and then a lot of waste. Um, I thought we had plenty of clothes. I mean, we never felt like we were, you know, being shortchanged on, on, on the number of shirts and stuff like that, so I, I thought it was okay. Um, again, we don't really have a dedicated space, for example, to wash or for hygiene. So each of us had a little bit of a, of a corner, like, you know, I, I was here, which is like behind the cabin for the toilet. And uh, for example, my buddy Butch was on, would be on top of me right there, <laughs> um, if we were in, in, in 3D. Uh, and you can set up your little, um, you know, hygiene corner to, to brush your teeth or wash your hair and, and, and things like that. There isn't really foreseen any kind of privacy in that sense. I mean, you, you could change inside the toilet if you wanted. Um, my buddies, the, the, my American colleagues, they, they actually went into PMM, which is the module I showed you before, the logistic module, and they had set up like a tent that they um, would hide behind. Um, I, I, I wasn't that sensitive to that, so I would just change there, but maybe warn them, hey, I'm going to change. If you don't want to see me, then stay out of the way for the next few minutes. But it wasn't a big deal, I guess, you know, cultural differences there as well. So this is the, the our little toilet cabin that you can see on the left. Uh, as far as toilet is concerned, of course, the, the magic thing is airflow. You want to, things to go in the right direction. So before you use it, you want to make sure you turn on the fan and you make sure that there is airflow. So you put your hand on it, good airflow, good to go. <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, we do a lot of maintenance on the toilet as well. I mean, and, you know, if you're, if you're building life support systems, and I'll show you a lot of maintenance work. This is uh, another maintenance task that we have to do occasionally. I think in this case, it was really um, corrective maintenance. We had a pump uh, break. Uh, the, the toilet is also connected to the uh, water recycling system. It's what we call the urine processing assembly because, of course, water we need to recycle, we wouldn't be able to send up fresh water all the time. Um, and so this is it, this is our urine processing assembly. Um, does require a little bit of maintenance as well, I mean it broke a few times on us while we were on board. Uh, definitely requires periodic change of, of this tank, which is the brine tank. It's what's left 
when you're done recovering everything that you could recover from the urine, you know, the salts and all the solid stuff is collected in this tank and that needs to be taken out and emptied. And so we have two that we rotate in and out. So it, you know, it, it does require some, some time and attention. Generally speaking, the life support system requires you to go and get your tools quite often. Um, this is just a ventilation filter change in Columbus. I, I, I thought it was a lot of work for something that should be straightforward and simple. So again, you know, life support is something that shouldn't break. And if it really breaks, it should be quick to fix and easy. Uh, for example, not like this. This is the CEDRA. It's the carbon dioxide removal assembly on space station. Breaks way more often than we would like. And it takes like, you know, we had it we had two maintenance sessions of CEDRA while we were on board and both of them were like two or three days. So it, it, it's, uh, it's what we don't want for, you know, it's, it's what really I think people are looking into not having for systems like that in the future. I mean, we, we, think we need things that are more robust and we need things that are way easier to, to maintain than what we currently have on, on station. Uh, we'll probably also need something to work out, especially you know, if, we're, if we're looking into um, uh, staying in microgravity for an extended period of time. So what we have on station right now is marvelous, functions great, it's called AROD, it allows you to do all kinds of weightlifting exercises that you would do in the gym. But of course it's, it's a huge uh, bulky machine that, that uh, probably wouldn't fit in a, in a cislunar habitat unless we're, unless we're going for the luxury option. Uh, we also have an aerogometer. And we have a treadmill that allows us to run. So I, I am assuming all things that we will not have in, in future cislunar habitats, at least at the beginning. So I think there is some work going into finding something which is hopefully equally effective, or at least close to equally effective, but a lot, a lot smaller. Uh, this is where we eat. It's called the Node 1. Uh, here on the left, you can see this is a little electric oven that we use to reheat food packages that are ready to be ready to eat, basically. They're kind of like field rations for, for soldiers. Uh, some of the food packages instead are dehydrated, like that would be. So you actually have to plug them into the water dispenser and add water, and then you just cut it open and uh, it's, it's decent most of the time. <laughs> and some food is just the way it would look from the supermarket, like those are almonds and goji berries. I mean, they... I had them fly up straight from the supermarket, so that works too for, for things that are um, fulfill certain requirements. And occasionally we get fresh food, but only when there's a cargo vehicle that just came and then we, uh, we get a little bit of fresh food for a few days. You probably are familiar with ATV, the automated transfer vehicle. We saw the, the very last one uh, was up there with us. We sent it home. That was ATV-5. That program, of course, has come to an end. Uh, when a big vehicle is uh, coming or leaving, it looks sort of like that. You know, we have staging areas around station. This, for example, is in Note 2, and then you're, you know, you're trying to set up bags and making sure that everything is packed correctly for a return. The ground tracks every bag. I mean, they need to know how much mass is in every bag and where every bag is going in the vehicle because they need to calculate the center of mass for the, for the burns for return. This was a Dragon, another vehicle we got, I'm sure you're familiar with, brought me the espresso machine. So, you know, definitely the, the space station is the, the luxury version of, of space habitats. Probably won't have that either in this lunar orbit. We even had zero G cups, as you can see, that works too. Um, I'm sure you know Dragons, they're not like ATVs, they do not dock automatically to stations, so there is some robotic activity involved in uh, grabbing them and then attaching them to station. So this is our marvelous Canada arm, so the robotic arm provided by Canada. 
that, again, nowadays is used mainly to gripe visiting vehicles, but was really instrumental in building the station piece by piece together. So I'm, I'm not sure what the plan is for the cislunar habitat. Bernard probably knows, but... <laughs> Um, and of course, we fly it from, from inside the station. So there's a robotic workstation. Um, it's actually two, one which is typically a backup that allow you to fly the arm in the, you know, it's six degrees of freedom and actually fly it around and, and hopefully go ahead and grab that vehicle. And I'm not sure if we'll have a, a cupola in our, in our future deep space habitat, probably, probably also a luxury item, but of course, you know, every astronaut's favorite place, especially in, in free time to, to look outside and, and enjoy the, the view. All right, so I'll wrap it up here, and as I probably was not as short as I promised, but if you have maybe some questions, I think we have five, ten minutes. You know that? I don't know, and I am not even sure that it's something that people talk about much. So I'm assuming very little. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have no idea. But we can probably try and find out. I mean, I can, I'm happy to take your card and, and see if I can find that information for you with the, with the specialist. But it's not something that is, you know, it's, one of the, it's not one of those things that is really on anybody's radar as a, like, a burning issue. Pleasure to meet you, sir. Um, most of the loud equipment is like uh, they have like sound insulating foam all around them that d definitely reduces uh, the noise a lot compared to what it would be without that. But I'm not going to say that the space station is quiet. You know that typical question that you sometimes get. You know how is it in space with all that silence? I mean there's there's. <laughs> I mean, if the space station goes quiet, it's actually time to worry because that means that there was an emergency and the computer shut down. But before doing that, you would probably hear an alarm. But, but, but anyway, it, it's actually eerie because we, we did have an alarm go off uh, actually a couple of times and it, it's kind of eerie because all of a sudden it goes quiet and it's like the space station is dead. Um, yeah, it, it kind of becomes a background noise and you don't even pay attention, but you know, you and I, we wouldn't be able to talk. I mean, we wouldn't be able to talk at this distance on station. And some of the modules are really, really loud, like Note 3 because of all the ECLIS equipment that is in there, that is incredibly loud. Um, so yeah, you're instructed to use earplugs as much as you can, most people don't. I started maybe the last few months, I, I started to feel guilty about not using them, and so I put them on, especially in Note 3, a little bit more. But, uh, and there's also those Bose um, no noise-canceling headphones you could use if you wanted to. But. Science journalist. Um, we talked about growing food on the first habitat yesterday. 
we also know that Italians do like food very much. So what is the kind of food you would really like to see um, be grown uh, on this station or any? <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I mean, whatever lies. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, as I think I've mentioned that a few times, I really think that the space station is a luxury place. I mean, it's like a luxury resort in terms of deep space, you know, as far as space exploration goes. So, um, and, and, and on space station, yes, we, we get to tell the people, you know, I would like my almonds and my goji berries. That's okay. We don't need that for cis lunar habitats. Just you know, get us there. Make sure that we can survive. Make sure that we have something nutritious to, to keep us healthy and get the mission done. But I, I wouldn't focus about you know what kind of food the astronauts like. I mean that that that's not really the point. I mean you know as long as we get some food, I think we're, we would all be happy to go to the moon and Mars and, and 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 we all understand that space station is a luxury place and we don't expect that kind of luxury. I mean, I missed a shower, but I mean, I mean, it's only, I mean, it's six months or seven months. I mean, you, you, you know, you, you're motivated, you're on a space mission, you know, it's not, don't treat astronauts like spoiled children. I mean, focus on the mission, please focus on the mission, focus on, on keeping people healthy, on having life support systems that work, that don't break. But, you know, everything else is cosmetics and people are going to put up with whatever. I'm glad to see you have many questions. We'll take them one after the other. Yes. Uh, I'm not a, not aware of any torque issues now. I mean, you know, there's the, yeah, that, that's a little bit the, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's any, yeah, I mean, I, I think as long as you are, I think you learn pretty quickly to like secure yourself and making sure that you, you know, react to any torques that you might apply. So I don't think it's a big deal. I mean, I had issues, for example, it's stuck electrical connectors, some of them maybe they've been up there for a lot of, you know, many years and have never been cycled and so they're kind of stuck. But that's not, it's just a question of my strength. I mean, they, they, it was more strength than I could apply or at least without, you know, so sometimes, you know, you have tricks, like you can get one of those rubber bands and, and, and use that and then you can apply more torque. But I never felt like the, the issue was myself not being able to react to the torque. Yeah, I, I think that's more one of those. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Simon Davidino from EPFL. So, my question is Do you get, so you have a chance of working in three dimensions, which is great. Do you ever get disoriented by whatever's up, down? Uh, do you think that it affects your efficiency? Would you recommend that we keep a certain structure in the way that we are designed? Or do you think of yeah, I, I think, I mean, I felt comfortable in any orientation, and I think most people would say the same. Uh, and I think the, the especially, I mean, the, the Russians, they have this um, approach where they actually design things really with an up and a down, kind of like it's on, on the ground, and I think that's the reason they do it. They feel that people will get disoriented otherwise. Uh, but the our labs on the USS sites, I mean, they're more like, you know, there might be a rack on the ceiling or a rack on the wall. And I, I think, you know, when you, when you start, once you've put your feet in on the wall and you're working on the ceiling, then that becomes your new up and down. So it's not a, not a big deal, I think. So then, uh, Mark, Claude, and 
spent uh, two very happy years in the green world in Biosphere 2, so I have two parts. I don't know, were there any uh, plant and animal experiments on board during your time? And what was your feeling when you looked at them? And secondly, the impact, because I've talked to other, and read the accounts of other astronauts, you know, looking at the Earth, you know, in such a different way, what was that like, and do you think it's changed now, you know, your relationship to uh, we had, uh, during my stay, I think we had only one plant growth experiment, it was, it, but they were like confined, it's not like you had like a greenhouse that you could look at and enjoy the, the view of the plants. I mean, the, the crew after us, they actually had lettuce, so it was kind of cool, they actually got to eat it. Um, and in terms of animals, well, I, I was actually um, assigned to an experiment, fruit flies, we tried to grow several generations of fruit flies, didn't work, they died. Um, apparently the habitat was too humid or too hot or something like that, so I tried, but, um, and then we had uh, mice, uh, but they were meant for dissection, so we tried not to get too attached to them, <laughs> they were not meant as pets. <laughs> uh, and then there's like, you know, all kinds of smaller animals, but, you know, like sea elegance and... I mean, I, get, I guess you could miss nature at some point, but I, I don't know, it's, I guess it's a question of personality. I mean, I'm the type of person, who, you know, you move me to another place and that's just my new normal. Um, at least, it's, you know, as long as I know that, you know, the, the plants are there on the planet and I'm gonna go back one day, so it's not like... But, I, I, you know, I, I guess if, if you are a person who tends to miss things, then I guess you would probably miss being in nature and, and, and stuff like that, yeah. And, and yes, I mean, it's this, this look of Earth, of course, it's, it, it's marvelous, but I mean, I, I don't want to, I, I want to try and de-dramatize that. I mean, that view of Earth from space, it, it really belongs to all of humanity. You don't have to be an astronaut and actually go there to have that experience. I mean, we've seen so many images and, and pictures and videos that I, I feel that even before I went to space, that was part of my cultural background. Hey, so good to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's a pity you can't stay with us for all of this afternoon. Uh, I, I don't have a question, but I have a statement. Um, here in Switzerland, people always have the feeling the space mission, they last about 12 days, and the volume is relatively small, like, a, like an airliner cockpit, like a shuttle, uh -huh. a double airliner cockpit. And I would like to, to thank you for bringing us uh, the message of uh, how to live and work in a space environment in a relatively large volume like ISS is, um, because this is a new perspective for the Swiss. Again, the Swiss have somewhat of a biased view of the stories I tell them. Oh. And, uh, I think it's interesting also to see that um, the larger the volume, uh, the more uh, crowded it is. It's like a large house. A large house, you tend to crowd it. When you have a very small house, it's more orderly. When you have a very small uh, house, then uh, it's very orderly. I'm sure the capsule of the Gagarin was not crowded mm -hmm. because there was room just for Gagarin. Mm -hmm. The shuttle was not crowded much at all because the volume was so small. But the impression we have is that the station is very crowded. I know it's orderly crowded. Yeah. But it's not a no, no. 
I think it's also because, you know, a space shuttle, it flies for two weeks and then it comes back and it's a new mission, right, afterwards. While the space station, the mission never ends. So, you know, a crew decides to leave something there on top of the maintenance workbench because they decide that, you know, having that screwdriver there is really important and it's just going to stay there forever because nobody's going to move it, but then somebody else will decide to keep something else there and something else. So, you know, if you actually have to clean those maintenance workbenches, like I had at some point to set up something and it's going to take you an hour to get rid of all the stuff that's, that's on there. And then maybe if you end up doing that, then you might think, okay, should I put this back or is this something that was decided in Expedition 3 and it makes no sense anymore? I mean, there is that accumulation of, of, of life and story on station. I mean, it's been up there for so long, right? So. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Claire. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know where there is a limit. There's folks up there who have stayed for one year that they just came back in, in March. I don't, I don't really think their experience in terms of habitability was that different. I mean, you know, I'm sure at some point they started to miss their family and, and life on Earth more than we did in six months. But I, um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe at some point they were starting to miss having a proper shower because they, they really, um, and, and I don't know that there is a code, um, you know, because, you know, space habitats are sort of unique places. I mean, we only have one space station and then hopefully soon we'll have a, a deep space habitat and it's lunar space, but I, I'm not sure that that's enough material to actually have codes and regulations. It's probably good, so. To <laughs> Thank you. I would like to ask in the spirit of the forum here that is to figure out the synergy between terrestrial and space application. If um, uh, along your stay there, when you come back, you see some technology on ground already mature to improve the situation for habitat management mm -hmm. or closed habitat. So from a technical point of view or a maturity level. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Uh, it's not a technology, but plants do a great job on the ground of keeping the CO2 level down. <laughs> CO2 level on station is actually a problem. I mean, we, uh, the scrubbers we have right now aren't capable of keeping them to uh, a decent level, actually, sometimes. I mean, I, 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 I wasn't too sensitive to it, but some people are, and they really get bad symptoms like headaches and, and fatigue and, and stuff like that. Of course, that, that's not a technology, but um, I, I don't know if in terrestrial applications there, there's something CO2-wise which, which is a little bit more efficient than, than what we have. You know, I, I showed you the picture of the maintenance we have to do on the seed dress. So they're, they're you know, they're, they're probably the one thing that people hate because, you know, they break often, they're so hard to maintain, and they don't really keep the CO2 down the way we would like it to be. But, yeah. Yeah, for long you have, we were waiting. 
actually, uh, Martin Nelson <coughs> addressed my first question, but I came up with another one. Um, what um, is the, the nu nutritional um, uh, micronutrient or supplementation program like, just uh, as a summary, uh, the, the, key, the key ingredients of that? Yeah, that you mean like supplements, not yeah. in the food. Yeah, that that's funny. I mean, the um, it seems like the the community doesn't really believe in supplementation that much. So the only one thing that is uh, given as a standard to astronauts is vitamin D, because of course you know no sun exposure for for many months. Um, yeah, I had a lot of supplements that I flew myself that I asked to to be put in in my you know in my personal containers, uh, but you know. There's no requirement, there's no recommendation, there's nothing like that. I was surprised myself. Yeah, I know. I, I don't want to steal the time from... We have to keep the time. So one last question. Okay. Oliver Lowell from AquaSense. I'm a water guy. I'm just curious, how do you feel about the water there, the taste and... The quality, uh, any is that a big concern or? No, water works great. I mean, uh, um, the, the only thing is that it requires a lot of uh, work again. I mean, you know, in terms of the, the quality of the water, I, I had no concerns and no complaints. I mean, it's just a neutral taste. Um, and the water dispenser is a great piece of equipment. It works great and never, never broke, which is great because I only have one. Um, but the water balance as a whole, it requires a lot of crew time and a lot of work. I mean, you know, there is the, for example, the, the urine thing, you know, while I showed you the tank, there is also the fact that we have to get the urine tanks from the Russians because the Russian toilet, there's two toilets on board, and the Russian toilet is not connected to the urine processing assembly, so we actually have to go and get the tanks from them and pump them into our system, so lots of work there. Um, and then if, if, if it breaks, uh, we, you know, we, we had actually the water processor break at least once, maybe twice. Then you start getting into this water balance thing where you actually have to offload the tank and, 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 and then use the water that you have stored. And so, um, you know, when it works, it works great. But again, um, for, for Mars missions, lunar missions, we probably need to have something more, more robust and that doesn't break and doesn't need all that much crew interaction. So again, uh, thank, many you. Thanks for thank you so much. For